This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. Join us for Mountainland Physical Therapy's second annual Pelvic Health Summit, May 4th through 6th in Park City, Utah. Led by board-certified experts, the Pelvic Health Summit will give participants a deeper look into the common issues regarding women, men, and transgender health, as well as innovative treatment plans. Participants will earn up to 14.5 CEU credits through lectures and hands-on labs, all while networking with other professionals in the field of pelvic health. Buy your tickets today at summit.mlp t.com forward slash public health that's summit.mlpt.com forward slash public health we'll see you there From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountain Land Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Splan. Thanks for listening. Dr. Erica Faircloth is my guest for today's podcast about miscarriages. Dr. Faircloth received her degree in biology from the University of Utah and attended medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Her OBGYN residency was at the PIROG in Arizona, and currently Dr. Faircloth is treating OBGYN at Cottonwood OBGYN in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Madison. It's great to talk with you. Dr. Faircloth was on our podcast a few years ago now, kind of about postpartum conditions. So we're excited to have you back to kind of talk about something a little bit different, a little bit more, you know, heart pulling on the heartstrings and some of the other podcasts that I commonly have. But I, I really feel strongly about this topic on miscarriages. And I really just want the information to get out there to all those women and, and partners listening to really understand what happened to the body what happened to the baby and know all, all there is to know about this unfortunate circumstance that women find themselves in. I think, you know, it's a very important subject and and actually I think it's a lot more common than than people in the general public realize. I mean, it's one of those things that we see fairly frequently. And when you start talking about miscarriage, you realize that it's affecting, you know, 20 to 30% of recognized pregnancies, which is an awful lot. Um, But it's something that's, you know, obviously difficult to talk about and difficult to go through. So I think that a lot of people don't realize how common miscarriage really is. So that's a very good baseline to start off with. I mean, 20 to 30%, that's that's a large number. Yeah, yeah. And those are, you know, including very, very early pregnancies. You know, you hear about things, chemical pregnancies, where you get that positive pregnancy test or the little line lights up and then it just doesn't take. And so, you know, once we recognize that first HCG, the rate is actually pretty high. So, Well, kind of just to start off with Dr. Faircloth, in essence, what is a miscarriage? Exactly. So miscarriage is um, defined as a pregnancy loss traditionally before 20 weeks. Um, After that, it's kind of termed more of a stillbirth or a pregnancy loss after 20 weeks, but it's a spectrum. And again, pregnancy loss can happen anytime right up to delivery, unfortunately. Fortunately, the risk for that very high pregnancy loss of of 20 to 30% is usually within the first, you know, couple of weeks of a recognized pregnancy. Um, So, you know, looking at pregnancy loss all throughout any trimester, but usually we talk about a miscarriage or a spontaneous abortion is the technical term for it. Generally, that's before 20 weeks of pregnancy. And from a biological component, what is happening maybe with bodily hormones during this phase um, and kind of just the whole biological action of a miscarriage? 
Well, and again, depending on kind of how far along that pregnancy goes, um, generally what we see first is, of course, that positive HCG, and that means that at some point this pregnancy has implanted. Another thing that we kind of parse out from, from miscarriage or what we term miscarriage or, or spontaneous abortions are ectopic pregnancies, which are also early pregnancy losses. They're just a pregnancy that's implanted in an incorrect position, most commonly in a tube, but can be found in lots of different places. Um, but once those pregnancies implant, whether they're in the correct or incorrect place, we'll see a bump in the HCG, which is the main pregnancy hormone. Um, that's usually detectable in the blood and often detectable pretty early in urine now that our tests are so accurate with the urine pregnancy tests. Um, once that occurs, progesterone levels also tend to go up and that's kind of one of the main hormones that helps to promote pregnancy as you go along. So both of those hormones start to go up. Usually that creates a situation where you're not going to see a period show up. And that's often when people find out they're pregnant is when that first period goes missing. Um, so after that, you know, it just depends on how this pregnancy is going to do. With a normal pregnancy, the HCG level increases at kind of a predictable rate. That rate doesn't always remain the same. It really goes up quickly in the very first part of pregnancy. And then it sort of plateaus as the pregnancy takes and, and is sustained. But when we see HCG levels that go up and don't go up appropriately, that's sometimes a red flag. HCG levels that plateau or go back down are also an indication that the pregnancy is not going well. So those are those are levels that we can often monitor in an early pregnancy to determine what's what's happening in the health of that particular pregnancy. Progesterone levels can also be looked at. Progesterone levels tend to be associated high levels with a good, healthy, normal pregnancy. The lower levels can be associated with miscarriage and also with ectopic pregnancies because of the way that that, that ectopic pregnancy is implanting in a non-uterine non space. When we see those levels, we use them sometimes, I use them in my clinical practice, sometimes to triage an early pregnancy that we're kind of unsure with what's going on. If the progesterone level is quite low, then the suspicion for perhaps an ectopic pregnancy is a little bit higher or just a, a pregnancy that's not doing very well. Um, but the primary hormone that we generally watch and trend for that first part of pregnancy before we're able to determine what's going on via an ultrasound is going to be your HCG levels. Awesome. So now to kind of head down the pathway of causes, what are kind of the most common causes of miscarriages and when do those happen versus the not so common causes and when do those happen commonly? The vast majority of early pregnancy loss, we in you know the medical community have found when you look at this tissue, if you look at uh, DNA analysis, you're going to find that these are pregnancies that don't have normal co chromosomal components. Sometimes it's just an extra single chromosome. Sometimes it's a complete duplication of the entire um, set of chromosomes or missing chromosomes, something that doesn't allow this pregnancy to have the correct information to grow a baby that's healthy and normal. And so when when tissue is analyzed, and, and again, you look at these things, that's the number one cause, especially of first trimester pregnancy loss. It's not the only cause though. And sometimes we have a clot, blood clotting disorder is a common cause for um, a pregnancy loss. And sometimes we see those later on. And the thought is that maybe there's a little bit of little tiny microclots that are that are getting into the placenta bed and creating a, a situation where that placenta is not able to grow and sustain the pregnancy. Mechanical factors can play a role in pregnancy loss. We see women with um, fibroids uh, can occasionally have that as a cause for miscarriage, although lots of women have lots of fibroids and have normal pregnancies as well. Sometimes it's just where that fibroid is, is related to where the placenta actually wants to implant. 
um, uterine anomalies, things like heart-shaped uterus, a uterus with a little wall in the middle. We call that a septum. There's a lot of variations on the shape of a uterus, and many women have those and have totally normal, healthy pregnancies as well. But it does slightly increase the chances that that pregnancy is going to, you know, perhaps implant on that little wall in the uterus, and that doesn't have as good a blood supply, and that can be associated with pregnancy loss. Um, there's some very rare genetic things that women can carry too that cause an increased risk for miscarriage um, in their children and their their pregnancies. Um, they're fairly rare, but sometimes we as an adult will actually carry a piece of chromosome that's that's uh, uh, matched up and creates a normal um, person as the adult person is, but is not necessarily good at creating a nice balanced uh, chromosomes for the baby. So your eggs tend to have these mismatched chromosomes. That's called a balanced translocation. It's really rare, but it's something that when people have recurrent miscarriage as part of the workup to look and see what may be causing an issue. Um, so, you know, there's some some generalizable things that we can see, you know, very significant uh, medical illnesses, particularly things like autoimmune disorders can sometimes increase the risk for miscarriage. Pre-existing medical conditions like diabetes can also increase the risk for miscarriage. So there's a few things that we look at, um, but really, truly, the early uh, miscarriages, first trimester, most often tend to be something genetic. Right. And just and particular to that particular pregnancy. So luck of the draw, just something happened in that creation of that um, embryo that was not 100%. And what is the protocol for, you know, workup post miscarriage? What what are those different procedures or tests that you're ordering and, and what are you looking for? You know, it can get to be a pretty extensive workup. Um, usually what we look at, though, it depends on the number of miscarriages and also kind of the timing in the pregnancy. If this appears to be, you know, if someone has a miscarriage in the first trimester, um, it's the only miscarriage they've ever had. Perhaps they have other kids or this is their first pregnancy. It doesn't generally warrant a, a large workup unless that's something the patient really wants to pursue. When we start to become more concerned is after two to three miscarriages um, or later pregnancy, pregnancy losses, things in the second, third trimester, we worry a little bit more about something that could be recurrent. Because first trimester miscarriages tend to be a sporadic error and something that happened with DNA in that particular pregnancy, even though in general, women have had a miscarriage, it may have a slightly higher risk for miscarriage in a subsequent pregnancy and a pregnancy down the road. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean anything is going to be wrong with the next pregnancy. In fact, statistically, 60% of women go on and have a totally normal, healthy term baby on their next pregnancy following a miscarriage, early first trimester miscarriage. So it does kind of depend, we tailor this to what's going on uh, with, the, with the patient and how many miscarriages they've had. Other factors have to do with maternal age. You know, if this is somebody who has, is above 30, some 35, we usually look at, you know, is advanced maternal age causing a chromosomal issue. We can check tissue that's, that's from a pregnancy loss and see what the DNA is. Now we have some really, you know, nice, um, efficient testing that's available for that. Um, so, you know, we have to kind of look at the overall circumstances and see if there's anything that seems unusual. We definitely offer a workup in that particular indication, whatever that happens to be. Um, but the vast majority of, of my patients who have a first trimester miscarriage end up having low risk for recurrence or low risk for other problems and may do no further workup at all. So, Okay. And now what are maybe some of those very rare causes of miscarriage? 
the list is super long. There is there is a lot that you can look into that can get down to like super fine detail, lupus and antiphospholipid antibodies. So there's a there's a whole group of things that we look at when we look at recurrent pregnancy losses. Um, if again, if it's just a one time pregnancy loss and and the patient goes on to have other healthy children, then we don't usually do an extensive workup. But again, we can kind of look at it and tailor it. Um, but there's there's kind of extensive, you know, it, rhombophilias, genetic issues, uterine anomalies. Those are kind of the big um, categories that we look at. But you can get down to some really fine details on that. So, all right. So now. I think what a lot of us, both patients and pelvic floor physical therapists, like to know kind of the medical processes following miscarriage based on the time frame of miscarriage. You know, I know the word DNC is thrown around often, but a lot of women have no idea, like, what is a DNC? What does that mean? What are my precautions afterwards? So will you maybe walk us through the different processes of what that miscarriage treatment looks like based on kind of how far along that woman is? within gestation. Absolutely. So I guess the first place to start is to talk about the different types of, of recognized pregnancy losses that we have. Um, again, ectopic pregnancies have a whole other set of management. They can be med medically managed. There's medication called methotrexate that we can use to get those pregnancies to shut down and uh, reabsorb in some cases if they're meeting certain criteria again for that. But ectopic pregnancies, because they also have a tendency to cause the tissues they're in to bleed, um, often end up with a surgery. And so there's a whole other set of surgical management, and that's abdominal surgery, often done with laparoscopy, sometimes not. Um, but that's, you know, ectopic pregnancies, which are outside of the uterine cavity. The vast majority of miscarriages, obviously, are going to be inside the uterine cavity. So the timing of diagnosis and what's happening when we diagnose a miscarriage kind of helps determine what the next step is. Many miscarriages will just pass on their own, and your body recognizes that this little pregnancy hasn't taken, it's not growing. Most women present uh, when they have this situation with cramping, bleeding, and sometimes having, you know, fevers or chills can go along with that occasionally. When those things happen in an early pregnancy, we always want women to get evaluated either in the emergency room or in our office so that we know what's going on. We often look at those labs like we talked about, the HCG. We look at their hematocrit. We also check their blood type to make sure that if they have RH negative blood, they, we can give them Rogam, which is, is generally done. Um, and then we look at an ultrasound. We say, is this a pregnancy that we can see? Has the pregnancy already perhaps passed on its own at home? Or is this a pregnancy that hasn't been doing well, does not have a heartbeat, does not appear to be growing, but is still inside the uterine cavity. The other way we diagnose miscarriage is what we call a missed miscarriage. And that's a patient who comes in to see, you know, their physician or their midwife, and they say, oh, you're pregnant, HCG is positive. And perhaps we look at the ultrasound and either see a heartbeat or don't, but later on, we don't see a heartbeat or the pregnancy doesn't progress as we expect with it growing and developing into baby. Um, those are patients that are given some options. Again, a lot of times these pregnancies eventually uh, will pass on their own. Um, your body sort of recognizes that this isn't going going well and the cervix will dilate on its own and the pregnancy tissue will pass on its own. Um, and many of those are without complication and can be, you know, something that happens at home without a lot of medical intervention. Patients who have a recognized pregnancy loss, but it hasn't passed these missed miscarriages, we can offer medication management. That's something that pregnancies generally under 10 or 12 weeks, we can, we can offer that depending on the size of the pregnancy. Um, that's a medication that we give. It's mesoprostol. It's used in a lot of other obstetric indications too for like postpartum hemorrhage. Um, but 
what it does in an early miscarriage is, is it helps to precipitate the miscarriage. It helps your body to recognize this isn't going well. Cervix will open up and the pregnancy will come out of the uterus and pass. That's about 85% successful. That's usually what we quote our patients in those first trimester trimester pregnancies that that are missed miscarriages or a miscarriage that hasn't yet completed. Sometimes for a, a pregnancy that's on its way but hasn't completed on its own, that medication can be used as well. When you mentioned a DNC, that's another option. It's a, a considered a surgery. Surgery where um, the cervix itself was is stretched open mechanically. So we use a set of what we call dilators. They're just little uh, sequentially larger um, essentially metal rods that are placed in the cervix and they stretch the cervix open. And then generally speaking, we use um, suction to remove the pregnancy from the uterus. Depending on how far along you are depends on what we do to, to make this process happen. Usually about after 14 weeks, it's called more of a dilation and evacuation, which is a DNE. Um, but this is another, you know, sort of subsegment of the DNC or, or removal of the pregnancy by uh, surgical means. That may involve having to place laminaria in the cervix, which are um, small rods that also will be placed sometimes a day ahead of time or even two days ahead of time to help soften and open the cervix as an uh, preparation for the surgery. Um, and finally, later in pregnancy, again, in that kind of four, 12 to 14 up to 16 weeks gestation, pregnancy losses after that time, um, it's also an option to come to the hospital and have an essentially an induction of labor. Um, again, that can involve all of the medications that we use for inductions of labor during the rest of the pregnancy. Um, when a pregnancy is lost in those later gestations, however, some patients want to, to approach it from that perspective. Um, and so we do bring those patients to the hospital um, to labor and delivery and start with uh, basically an induction of labor. So there's a lot of different options and it really, again, kind of depends on the clinical situation. Um, but when we talk about those different options, watching and waiting, um, medication management or surgical management, especially for first trimester miscarriages that are recognized but haven't completed, those are the options. Well, that is definitely a vast option in regards to medication and surgical treatments. Um, so let's say after a person fully miscarriages, has, you know, passes the Complete baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, like say it's medication or mm -hmm. like how, what is your recommendations moving forward? Like how long should they wait? And does that change when it's um, medication versus DNC or DNE? Like how do those recommendations change based on how far along that pregnancy may or may have not been. Absolutely. You know, again, with very early pregnancy losses, oftentimes they pass on their own and it's, you know, akin to a very heavy period. And, and we just follow HCG levels down to zero to ensure that the pregnancy tissue is all, all passed. Um, with patients who undergo medical management, for instance, that's another uh, situation that we like to watch either HCGs or have the patient return for another ultrasound. Let's say it was a pregnancy that we could see in the uterus on ultrasound. The way we determine that the pregnancy um, has passed and is, is no longer in the uterine cavity is just to repeat another ultrasound. Again, some of those patients, if we're concerned about, can also have their HCG levels followed till they return back to zero. Once that's occurred, within about two weeks, we generally will see our patients back and say, okay, let's talk about what the next steps are. 
Some patients say, hey, I, I don't want to try to get pregnant right away, and that's absolutely okay. Most people can return to normal activity, so swimming, bathing, using tampons, menstrual cups, having intercourse at about two weeks after a miscarriage, as long as everything has, has um, kind of gotten back to normal on their exam, and we're sure that the pregnancy has passed completely. In the case of someone who's wanting to try again for a pregnancy, another pregnancy, um, we generally say if everything else is looking all right, the patient's doing well, has no sign of infection, pregnancy is completed passing, usually within the next cycle, it's okay to start trying. So that I tell my patients, you know, after your next period, so following that two weeks where some women will have some kind of continued bleeding and spotting, after that first uh two weeks has passed, another period should be showing up within about three to six weeks. Some women choose to say, oh, I'm going to take a pill, uh, birth control pill pack for that month, just so you know when that next period is going to be showing up. After that period, though, it is okay if someone wants to start trying again, as long as they've talked it through with their doctor and have no other complicating medical issues. You know, someone had a miscarriage that we thought, oh, this may actually be their type one diabetes that's poorly controlled. Then the goal is to get that controlled before another pregnancy or, oh, we're worried because this patient has recurrent miscarriages. Maybe we need to do more workup. Those patients, we'd say, okay, let's maybe take a, take a little break and and work on figuring out what we're going to do for our next step. But for someone on a first miscarriage, it's early pregnancy loss, and they're just going to try again, and it doesn't seem like there's any other complicating factors, trying again after that next period is acceptable. And now, how does that recommendation change if they have a DNC or a DNE? For a DNC in that first trimester, recommendations are exactly the same. Even a patient with a, a later uh, pregnancy loss or even a miscarriage or a stillbirth later on, um, kind of depending on what's going on and how far in gestation they, they reached would depend on how long we'll have them wait. Patients who've been 20 weeks beyond, I usually have them wait between four to six weeks before returning to complete normal activity, although it does kind of depend on that, again, how far along they, they went and how they um, delivered that pregnancy. Um, but generally speaking, if someone is getting back to normal, their exam is normal, um, somewhere between two to six weeks, we'll release those patients back to normal activity. The rest of day-to-day -day activity should be pretty okay by the time we send a patient home. They should be able to you know, get in and out of their car, up and down a flight of stairs, do things around the house. Going back to work, it does. we do tailor that for like later pregnancy losses, kind of depending on how that patient is feeling as well. Some people feel fine even with a, a closer-to-term pregnancy loss stillbirth, um, kind of getting back to normal within a couple of weeks. And some people need a little bit more time to recover and, and need a little bit more space too. So that, again, is a little bit different as far as the restrictions, but the physical restrictions following a DNC in that first trimester are, are about the same for most patients. Again, barring unforeseen, you know, complications, infection, bleeding, that kind of thing. Okay. So from a pelvic PT standpoint, if we were working with a woman and then mm -hmm. they tell her, they tell us that, you know, they're pregnant and then they have a yeah. miscarriage, we're kind yeah. of, we're safe to begin kind of internal work again with that patient on that kind of four to six week mark is like exactly. the same time. Yes, exactly. And as long as they've talked to their doctor, it could be as early as two weeks with an early loss and if they've recovered quite well. But yeah, somewhere in the range of four to six weeks for a lighter pregnancy loss or a DNA would be reasonable as well. Okay, that's good to know. Um, What, you know, this topic has a lot of, you know, deep rooted thoughts and processes on both, you know, mental and psychological and physical being. Um, so I'm kind of curious what recommendations you have for patients, you know, struggling a little bit more with that. What what do you recommend in regards to mental well-being? What what books or, or things do you have in your toolbox that you commonly recommend for these individuals to help process through what's just happened? 
You know, I think it's, uh, first of all, I always want to make sure that I kind of touch base with patients that have had a pregnancy loss, because even a really early pregnancy loss, positive pregnancy test, and oh, it doesn't, doesn't take, you know, that can be really devastating. Um, And there's not one right way to feel either. Some people don't feel a lot and some people feel really anxious about the situation or really sad or disappointed, or some people are actually kind of relieved because they want intending to get pregnant. There's a whole range of, of what can be considered a normal response to a pregnancy loss. Um, and I try to reassure my patients as well. And in the vast majority of these cases, these are unpreventable. I mean, that's the hardest part about pregnancy loss is that it's nothing that you can really do a heck of a lot about. Um, again, you can't control what chromosomes this pregnancy gets. Um, and when, when things aren't hundred percent perfect with that, that's what results in a lot of these pregnancy losses. And there's nothing you can do to will that away or to take a medication that will make that different. Um, but, you know, in the aftermath of pregnancy loss, some people feel the, a true sense of grief and that is, that is a normal response as well. A, a lot of this is just that disappointment and going through the excitement of thinking that pregnancy is happening and, and starting to plan. You know, a lot of times that first pregnancy test, you start thinking about the future and what's going to be happening and to have that all kind of just stop and stop suddenly is, is really devastating. Um, so, you know, there's lots of good resources. Your doctor or your midwife is a good resource to start with. That's always a good place to begin. Um, but for my patients, you know, we, we see where they are. A lot of people, uh, do well with counseling, especially if this is a recurrent pregnancy loss. Like that's sometimes very important. Um, we have lots of online resources, of course, anymore. There's some good links that I think I sent you the postpartum net. Uh, pregnancy loss, some good books out there, Miscarriage Map, Not Broken is another really great um, book. So there's lots of resources out there, sometimes even just getting on a Facebook or, you know, looking in your your networks on online, there's a lot of really great uh, resources, a lot of women who've been through the same kind of event in their life as pregnancy loss. And um, I always also remind people that they would be surprised. And a lot of times they have come to me and say, well, I'm so surprised after this miscarriage, how many of my friends or family or coworkers came to me and and said, yeah, this happened to me too. And, and they didn't know that. Um, it's not something a lot of people want to talk about that and makes you feel bad to think about, I think is one of the main reasons. And a lot of times there's a complicated, you know, set of emotions that go with it. Um, but to know you're not alone and to know that a lot of, a lot of moms out there, you know, having a miscarriage is something that a lot of moms have gone through. People you see at the grocery store with their kids, they're probably somebody who could have had a miscarriage and it's not something that you see that you see on the outside, but it's something that happens to a lot of us who have kids. So um, I try to reassure my patients that this is sometimes just part of that process of getting to be a mom and that it's not always at the end of everything and that there's hope down the road that a lot of times another pregnancy is is waiting and that's going to work out just great and fine and you'll have a nice healthy baby down the road if that's what your goal is. So I think it's important, you know, again, just to to recognize that this is this is real, this is common, that people are not alone who are going through this, and that there's lots of support out there, and um, that it's something in, in a lot of cases that won't happen again, and that uh, hope is there. So I do love one positive thing: social media is these awesome yeah. like spo- support groups that have mm-hmm. come out in it, and they do specify state and type. And so I liked that awesome part of social media that you can reach out and, you know, ask for advice from maybe you, you kind of have that curtain. So you mm-hmm. can be a little bit more open on some of those uh, sites and just kind of mm-hmm. 
let the emotions fly. I think, you know, in, in my office, I'm always just like, you know, whether I'm working with a pregnant woman who realizes she has a massive varicosity and it's like, what is going on? And begins to bawl. I'm always mm-hmm. like, you know, girl, just let it out. Don't hold it back. If these, these walls could talk, they've definitely <laughs> seen it all. And don't, you know, yeah. I think that's a really important part too, is like hiding, try not to hide your emotions and your feelings because they need, they need a, an avenue as well. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Dr. Faircloth, if nothing else, what do you hope listeners take away from this podcast? Oh, I would say, you know, I think that it's uh, pregnancy and pregnancy loss can be can be very complicated, right? I think it's important if you are, you know, experiencing symptoms that you're worried about, if you're cramping or bleeding and you're pregnant, you don't know, you know, who your doctor is yet, or or you do when you're just nervous about reaching out and calling. I think it's always the best policy to say, hey, everyone here is, you know, more than happy to hear from someone calling who's worried or concerned about something. Give someone a call, come into the hospital if you're worried or concerned. Um, you know, a lot of things in pregnancy seem you know, to be concerning on the outset and end up being okay. Some other things, you know, seem like they're going all right and end up not being as okay. So, um, you know, I think it's important to find somebody that you can work with and that you trust so that they are there to help you because that's what we're here to do. And I want, you know, to let my patients know that if they have questions or concerns or if they're worried about what's going on with their body when they're pregnant, that they reach out to us so that they are uh, suffering in silence and and being nervous and anxious without having some, you know, uh, reassurance or, or getting to the bottom of what's actually happening. Um, and, you know, with regard to pregnancy loss, you know, um, it's, again, one of those things that that is, you know, surprisingly common um, and often has, you know, very little to do with anything happening on the outside, you know, of that particular pregnancy and they're trying to grow. Um, and so, you know, again, it's one of those situations that's hard to get through sometimes and we are here to help with that process um but that if that is something someone is worried about or, or is experienced or has recurred you know experienced recurrent pregnancy loss and needs to get in and, and get an evaluation for that um that's what we're here to do and here to help with so good and i hope people take some clinical pearls away from this as well with kind of all this awesome information that you've provided uh, so thank you for listening if you would like to speak with a specialist please email podcast at mlpt.com i would again like to thank dr faircloth for coming on the show and if listeners want more information or would like to get into contact with you what's the best way to do so so i am at cottonwood obgyn our contact number here is 801 1950-1950. Again, it's Cottonwood OBGYN. We're located at the Intermountain Medical Center Hospital in Women's Pavilion, Building 7 on the fourth floor. Um, so if anybody has questions or wants to set up appointments, I'm up here and uh, taking new patients. So. Great. Well, again, thank you for listening. Tune in to next month. Also remember to subscribe to this podcast in order to get the most up-to-date episode information and download. Mark your calendars for Mountainland Pelvic Health Summit May 4th through the 6th in Park City, Utah. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. 
the contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.